next mile. The brave side to the blind man. It's down to the left child. We will survive in this country wilderness. Swimming through the waters of Babylon like a rebel fish. Jogging is specialist. Predator and survivalist. Spitting heaven's fire from his lips. Burn a slave driver. Welcome, listeners, to Time for an Awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and the current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge, where we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. All that getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations, you can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the home page, and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Catch the live stream there also. You can go to a bb2me.com. That's A B I. B-I-T-U-M-I dot com forward slash time for an awakening and the live stream is running there. Or you can download TuneIn to any of your uh, devices. TuneIn is a free app. And then that free radio app, just type in time for an awakening. There you'll see the icon and you can stream your program live even into your car if you have the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, it's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn radio app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. It's Time for an Awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook. And Time for an Awakening media is there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening Media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also, check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace in our partnership with the BB2Me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. It's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's uh, 7.07 here on this Sunday evening. This hot Sunday evening here in the city of Philadelphia, and we're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening, author, historian, and chair of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn is with us this evening. White nationalism and its unbreakable link to U.S. imperialism. 
and related topics from Dr. Horn's books will be the subjects of our discussion this evening. And you can always be involved in the discussion with questions or comments by dialing 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use 
find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening at 712 here in the city of Philadelphia. And before I get started with the program, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street, Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Ellie. How are you, sir? Um, I'm doing, uh, you, you mentioned my favorite topic, the weather is nice. Uh, <laughs> so with that happening, all is good. And besides having uh, uh, the most uh, admired um, scholar, academic, um, really, when you, you know, when anybody who has um, really engage um, Professor Horn's work, recognize this is a man who's really uh, committed um, to the uh, knowledge production and intellectual project um, for of African people, as I said, and, and have provided many moments of joy and, and admiration of the amount of research work he can be able to do, the production output. Um, and then just the narrative, the assistance in narrative. So I'm mean, I'm going to uh, I'm glad that we're engaging in conversation tonight with um, Dr. Horn. You know, it's been a while since uh, Dr. Horn has been with us. Uh, I forgot the subject matter the last time. In fact, it was um, it was the book from 2014. I think it was yeah, but the last book that he had, or. And, and and several books came out after that. Yeah, but. yeah. Dr. Horn is a renaissance man. Every, it seemed like every subject that you could think of, he's written on it. In fact, I wanted to get him on at another time to talk about that book he did on boxing because it's interesting, uh, some of the things that, that are entailed in that book and information. That, uh, that's a great subject to talk about. Hmm. Uh, tonight we're going to be dealing with something that uh, our people have been confronted with since they've been in this country. Um, you know, it kind of smack the uh the public in the face uh on January sixth when they seen uh white nationalists storming the Capitol and uh it caused uproar in the country. Uh but we see that they're trying to um trying to do a little whitewash job mm-hmm. if you kind of follow what's going on. Uh Congress just passed a bill uh to investigate the Capitol riots. So that'll entail millions of dollars, millions of taxpayers' dollars, mine and yours, Richard, uh, for something they already know the origin of and what it's really about. Um, you know, our, our people have been dealing with this since we've been here. Uh, and especially, I guess, from the 20th century on, we've been more reacting to it instead of doing real strategic planning against it. Uh, but let's delve into this topic with... Uh, Dr. Horn, because 
I really like his approach to it because you can't defeat anything unless you get the understanding of what you're dealing with. Uh, let's bring our guest on this evening, and I think he's with us here, author, historian, and chair of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn, is with us this evening. Dr. Horn, how are you, sir? Oh, it's all good. What about you? <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm happy to have you back on Time for Awakening with myself and Brother Richard. How you doing, Professor Horn? Okay. Dr. Horn, uh, your last article that you wrote, and uh, for anybody that didn't see it, just go to Dr. Horn's uh, uh, Facebook page and you'll see it. I think it's one of the top ones up at the top, uh, unless you put something else up there recently, uh, where you kind of answered another uh, writer, uh, Bob Wing, uh, when he did an assessment on white nationalism. Your article was entitled Against a Left-Wing White Nationalism by Gerald Horn. And that's where I would have kind of start this conversation. Um, you deal with a lot of what you're going to talk about, I, I, uh, I'm more than sure, in your latest book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, uh, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Settler Colonialism. Uh, but let, let's start here, uh, Dr. Horn, because we see what happened in January 6th. Uh, some folks are kind of uh, dismayed by what happened. Uh, some of our people may not understand the origins of what they're dealing with. Uh, some people feel as though that this stuff can be um, just talked out of uh, uh, the oppressive folks that have been doing this. Well, if you can talk to Susie and talk to uh, 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 Billy when they're young, they won't grow up to be adults and, and, and perpetrate these things. But we can see this type of behavior has been generational and has been going on for hundreds of years. Uh, and it had been going on since before Europeans set foot on this continent. It was a planned strategy. L let's start there, Dr. Horn, before we get up to what we need to do as a people to really counteract what's going on and plan some strategies against it. Um, in the article that you wrote, you kind of talk about the origins of it on the European continent when it was infighting among European nations. And uh, I think you mentioned uh, about the English stepped up and tried to incorporate, or not tried, successful incorporating other uh, European nations into this uh, title or conglomeration of being white. But let's start there, Dr. Horn. Well, the story of the invasion of what we call North America begins post-1492 with Columbus, as you know. But a turning point comes in 1517 with the split in Catholicism, with Martin Luther forging the so-called Protestants. And the Protestants begin to sweep Europe by storm, particularly England which sets up a cycle of religious wars between Catholics and Protestants. Just as a footnote, it, it's remarkable that a disproportionate percentage of black Americans are Protestant, particularly as you go through my book that you mentioned, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, you'll see that the Protestants were in the forefront 
uh, of helping to spearhead the African slave trade. But without getting ahead of myself, these these religious wars between Protestants and Catholics take place. And what happens, as you indicated, is that England, which had been warring with the Scots, the Welsh, the Irish uh, for centuries, they're the scrappy underdog. And they're uh, always on the verge of being overthrown by Catholic Spain. Catholic Spain, of course, sponsored Columbus and then got fat and wealthy by plundering Native American wealth in the Americas. So what happens is that London, England, wants to get in on this new feast, this new banquet in the Americas. Spain had a religious qualification to be a settler. You had to be a Catholic. And so therefore, when Cuba was conquered in the 1500s, there were African conquistadors who professed Catholicism. London broadened the base of settler colonialism by moving from saying you had to be a Protestant to be a settler to say you had to be, first of all, of British descent, which would co-opt the Irish, the Scots, and the Welsh. And then they broadened it further by making it a pan-European project, or what you might call a whiteness project. That is to say, those who have been warring on the shores of Europe, uh, British versus German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian, Serb versus Croat, the list is endless. All of a sudden, when they cross the Atlantic in a maneuver that would make Madison Avenue blush, they're rebranded as, quote, white, which broadens the base of settler colonialism, giving England more forces to subdue the indigenous population of the Americas, not to mention to enslave the Africans. And in a nutshell, that's a portion of the article that you so kindly mentioned against left-wing uh, white nationalism. And that's also, in essence, the core thesis of my book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse. Now, what happens is that what many black people suspect instinctively happens to be true, despite what you might have learned at school. I mean, many black people think instinctively that this project in North America that led to the formation of the United States was basically a white supremacist project from day one. But it's, it was considered impolitic to teach that in public schools, particularly today. So you have to construct this fiction about how the Constitution, and of course it's celebrated in your own Philadelphia, how the Constitution, which of course did not apply to the enslaved, certainly didn't apply to the indigenous population. There was no Second Amendment right of the indigenous to bear arms. In fact, a strategic objective of the settlers was to keep arms out of the hands of the indigenous, and certainly out of the hands of the Africans. But you have to sort of throw dust in the eyes of the people to get them to go along with what's going on today. And so you teach them that the Constitution was sufficiently flexible to be amended. And then when you see these events like January 6, 2021, where fundamentally what's going on is that a lot of these people defined as white, they feel that the game has changed, which it has been, because we were able to organize to push back against slavery, to push back against Jim Crow. And they feel that that's eroded so-called white privilege, and they want to turn the clock back. And so therefore, they tried to have an uprising on January 6th. Uh, so far, their uprising has proved to be a nullity, but stay tuned, particularly since 
it's apparent that the Republicans, which has an insurrectionist caucus and is probably complicit with regard to the events of January 6th, certainly doesn't want to investigate because that's like investigating yourself. I mean, that's just like uh, the prosecutor investigating himself and then putting himself on trial. <laughs> so don't, don't hold your breath for that to take place. So this is where we are right now. And I must say, it's a very dangerous and perilous moment that we face. Dr. Horn, before I pass the mic to uh, to Brother Richard, l- let me ask this because um, in the top of the article that you wrote, and I- I'm going to read the-, the sentence that you stated here, it says, those who consider themselves to be sophisticated refer to an incomplete revolution as if the founders had in mind others not defined as white but perhaps forgot to include them. Uh, this is uh, akin to referring to uh, implanting apartheid in 1948 and an incomplete reform as if those founders perhaps forgot to include Africans uh, in the bounty. Let, let, me, let me ask you a question as a historian. Uh, that statement you made, uh, it's absolutely true that they didn't forget to include Africans who were here and the indigenous people who were here before they came. Uh, what exactly do you think? Because it's clear that these people planned a strategy before they came here and while they were here. What do you think was in their mind as far as Africans that were here? We already seen what they had in mind for the indigenous population. They basically exterminated the Native American people. But if you look at black folks, you can see there's certain points in history. Jefferson dealt with it. Lincoln came up with a strategy to get black folks out. Uh, free black folks that was walking around in the society, they wanted them out. Uh, I think during the period of Washington, during that Revolutionary War, it was a uh, suggestion or strategy to get black people removed from the country. So do as a historian, do you think that they had a, a out strategy, so to speak, with Africans here? They didn't always plan, and I know that they didn't feel as though maybe two, three, four hundred years from now we'll still have these people in chattel bondage. So what do you think was their basic end game with, with our uh, ancestors here? Well, I think there was a kind of improvisation. For example, with the English moving towards pan-Europeanism and whiteness, that was kind of an improvisation. I mean, their backs were against the wall. I mean, the Spain came within a whisper more than once of overthrowing the monarchy and Queen Elizabeth, then Queen Elizabeth, in the 1500s. And so they were improvising like a, a drummer at a jazz club. <laughs> okay. So that's one point. The second point in, in terms of the article, and I would be remiss if I failed to mention this, I began the article by talking about how many black people are rethinking this entire project. And I don't mention myself because, you know, I'm the one writing the article, but I include myself in that category. But the first person I mentioned is Raul Peck, the filmmaker of Haitian origin, who grew up in the United States in the Congo, uh, whose latest documentary, Exterminate All the Brutes, is well worth watching. You can find it uh, on HBO Max. And you might be familiar with his earlier film, Lumumba, which in a sense deals with his childhood. It deals with Patrice Lumumba of the Congo. 
And, of course, he did the film on James Baldwin, I Am Not Your Negro. And then, of course, there is this new book uh, by another professor called White Freedom. And as the title suggests, the idea of freedom that we're told is the embodiment of the United States was always encoded as a whiteness project. It, wasn't, it was not intended to include us. I mean, uh, to answer your question, uh, we were intended to be hewers of wood, drawers of water, a free labor force, like Walter Rodney uh, talked about in his book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, uh, the point of Africa and the Africans was to help develop Europe. I mean, basically, that was the plan. And if these founders uh, were to somehow be revived today, they would be shocked to see where we are because they thought we would still be slaves in 2021. Okay. So that's the bottom line. And, and then I should mention a couple of other projects uh, as well. The much uh, criticized project by the New York Times journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, the 1619 Project, uh, we understand some of the criticisms are fair, some are totally unfair. Overall, it's a worthwhile project, as any objective observer would uh, agree. But she has the audacity, right in the New York Times, this really would upset people, to, say, to suggest that 1776, uh, a, a settler's revolt spearheaded by slave owners, might have had something to do with preserving slavery. Imagine that. <laughs> and of course, she's been denounced by some ever since. And so this is where we are. And then the question becomes, what is to be done? Uh, Richard, jump in. Yeah, you know, um, Professor, there's a couple of things I want to get clarity on, uh, I guess, hopefully. Um, when you, the, the whole notion of whiteness, um, and what I like about your work is one is it, it, it brings the geopolitical aspect in the historical realm. But I'm, I'm, the question to be direct is, is 1662 when um, whiteness is defined here, if I have this right, um, is America defining in law whiteness for the whole European, um, um, uh, in, yeah, European s- structure? Or is it just defining whiteness um, as it relates to America, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, the, um, the settler colony of Virginia and how it's going to handle its relationship between um, Africans and um, those Europeans that they're bringing, or those poor Europeans that they're bringing here. Um, I'm asking, is this a, the law, because I get the understanding, the law itself um, is something that they had to even construct to make it valid. Is that something America gives to Europe in order to um, solidify its colonial power nexus, if that makes sense. Well, I I would say this, that the Whiteness Project is basically a settler colonial project arising in the first instance in the place they call Virginia, named after the so-called Virgin Queen, Queen Elizabeth, Of course, it has blowback with regard to Britain itself, because, of course, uh, in London, uh, from early on, there was a black population, albeit not that large. But certainly when you construct a whiteness project in the settlements, it's going to blow back into the motherland. And certainly it helps to define those who come under London's jurisdiction in Virginia be it Irish or Scots or Welsh or German 
or whatever. But I think to, to, to say that it would apply to all of Europe in 1662 is probably a bridge too far. Mm. Uh, that comes much later. I mean, that, that would have been totally presumptuous because 1662, England was not necessarily a major power. It was st it's still, actually, it was having conflicts then that it's having today, for example, with Irish Catholics, for example, who had not signed on to the Protestant project. So the whole pan-European uh, question uh, in full bloom to apply to Europeans across the board comes much later. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I also I also noticed it was something in, in the apocalypse of the settler that um, you mentioned that struck my attention. And, so, and I'm, I'm trying to place, because we see, I think, um, in the news, um, there's... Um, this, there's the event that's going on in France in relationship to the generals uh, sending what two letters talking about right. you know um, and that is that has to deal with immigrations and I'm assuming it's dealing with Africans coming into here. So this whole thing of the consolidation of white nationalism is you know what happened January 6th is not just about America, it's about um, um, white the ultra white, uh, nationalist front um, gaining or wanting to gain its power position um, in, in in the global power nexus, because you know because of other things. But you, um, so I wanted to that the, you had made a, a statement on page page sixty five in relationship to that, and I, and I apologize doing the history, but that statement where uh, Roosevelt completed what Cromwell started, and and the reason I'm raising that is because to make sure we understand that this is something uh, uh, in relationship to nation states, not just something that's going on here. Am I reading that right, that that statement? Am I taking it out of context, um, that no, this is I mean, a project? Let, let me just add that with regard to that letter in Paris, which is very fascinating, uh, just to refresh your recollection or the audience's recollection, mm -hmm. so you have these retired right-wing generals who are up in arms because they think President Macron in France is much too soft on the question of Islam and the question of immigration. And on the 60th anniversary of the attempt by French generals and settlers in Algeria, called that Algeria had been a colony of France beginning in 1830 and only came to independence in 1962. And in 1961, April, these generals saw the writing on the wall and they want to overthrow the French leadership under President Charles de Gaulle. And so actually you can, there's a, a dramatization of that in the film uh, Day of the Jackal. So on the 60th anniversary, these retired and some serving generals uh, served this letter on Macron uh, warning him that the country is going over the cliff, hinting at a military coup. Good, yeah. And then you have a similar letter uh, spearheaded by John Poindexter, Admiral John Poindexter, retired. Recall his name implicated in the Iran-Contra scandal under Reagan in the 1980s. Uh, and they send a letter, open letter, warning that Biden is leading the country supposedly to, quote, socialism, unquote, and that uh, his presidency is illegitimate. This comes in the wake of a fascinating article in the current issue of Foreign Affairs magazine published by the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, 
on the posh Upper East Side of Manhattan, which talks about in recent times, particularly under Obama, the military was becoming quite restive in this country, that they did not necessarily want to follow the Constitution, this vaunted Constitution. Of course, you have this Constitution Center in the heart of Philadelphia, a stone's throw from where you are, that uh, seeks to propagandize about the, the Constitution. And so there was a hint, more than a hint, in fact, towards some sort of military uh, revolt against uh, Mr. Biden. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind as well that on January 6th, you had a number of retired military uh, participating. You had active police officers participating. Right. Recall as well that in the wake of January 6th, Lloyd Austin, a black American, the chief of the Pentagon, basically halted all military activity so that they could study the question of white nationalism in the ranks, which apparently is roaring out of control. And one of the lessons I think we should take away is that some of us, and some of our leaders too, I'm afraid, have been guzzling the Kool-Aid. They haven't been drinking it. They've been guzzling this Kool-Aid, this propaganda about so-called liberal democracy and the Constitution, and it's coup d'etats and all that that happens in the, quote, third world, unquote. This is a stable democracy, blah, blah, blah. But right now, I think what's happening, there's a lot of hysteria. There's hysteria about the changing demographics of the country. Despite the way that Mr. Obama ruled, there was a kind of hysteria about what was perceived as black ascendancy. There's certainly a theory about the rise of China and what that pretends for white supremacy. And so basically, uh, in some ways, what the news is telling us is that you really need to rethink, because once again, we're facing a very dangerous and perilous moment. Mm. And, 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 and can we, and, and I'm always trying to place it in, and it's, a, you know, I'll, I'll pass it back to you, Ellie, but I'm always trying to place these events um, in this historical, and I don't know if it's real, you know, that there is some historical continuity because um, I'm looking at, um, I'm thinking about what's going on in Palestine and the support. I mean, you get this open support for this going on. And I'm, um, I'm again, you know, looking at your book and where um, Benjamin Lopez and his relationship and I'm asking the question, is the relationship, even though that's earlier and everybody points to 1945, as far as the making of the state of Israel and all of that, and we can see what um, Trump did, but this relationship doesn't have, um, especially as it relates to the merchant class, the Jewish merchant class, doesn't have, does it have a long historical continuity and in relationship to why America's, uh, uh, you know, settler state is supporting the kind of things that are going on in Israel from a historical perspective. Well, as I said a moment or two ago, uh, London's winning ticket was to move away from religious qualification to be a settler to pan-Europeanism. Spain stuck stubbornly to being Catholic in order to be a settler. As I said, if you were an African and professed Catholicism, you could be a conquistador. Uh, Spain, on the other hand, 
1492, they not only uh, set Columbus loose to sail the ocean blue, that's when they began their accelerated attempt to expel the Jewish population. And that's also when you had the decline of what had been 700 years of Islamic rule on the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. And then uh, you begin to see the expulsion of the Islamic population. Uh, finally, in 1609, they were expelled altogether. Now, as I said, London was the underdog. It had expelled this Jewish population in 1290, 1291, approximately, what, uh, 900 years ago. But it was under the gun. It, it came within a whisker of being overthrown by Catholic Spain. Protestant London came within a whisker of being overthrown by Catholic Spain. So it couldn't afford to be choosing in terms of allies. So it welcomed the Jewish folks who were being expelled from Spain and Portugal. The same holds true for Protestant Holland or the Netherlands. And in fact, I should also say that the other major power of that era, which I have not mentioned to this point, the Muslim powers, Ottoman Turkey, they also welcomed uh, the Jewish population that was fleeing the Iberian Peninsula. And then, of course, in the resultant United States of America, the revolting spawn of London, uh, they too welcomed the uh, Jewish population as well. And they were ushered into the Hall of Halls of Whiteness, of course, there was bumpiness alongst the road. Uh, some of your audience might be familiar with the Leo Frank case, uh, this Jewish man in Georgia, what, 115 years ago, was executed, lynched by a Christian Euro-American mob because supposedly he had violated some young Christian girl. So there was bumpiness alongst the road, but I think it's fair to say, and Philadelphia is an exhibit A in that regard, Mm -hmm. There has been a fair integration, shall we say, of many Jewish Americans and the U.S. ruling elite, which brings us to Israel, because uh, from the inception of Israel, 1947-1948, uh, needless to say, he was receiving maximum support uh, from the United States of America, uh, backed by a powerful Israeli lobby. Uh, this Israeli lobby continues to operate today. I'm afraid to say that it is cowed a good deal of black leadership, black organizations, black mm. intellectuals. And then that brings us to the events of the past two weeks, this war of aggression, this war crime in Gaza, where you begin to see a kind of crack in the U.S. solidarity with Israel. Uh, my opinion is that this crack will deepen because there are so many contradictions. One, uh, Israel is leaking U.S. technology, military technology to China which is understandable because everybody reads the newspapers and you know, the smart money is betting on China in the passing lane. Mm -hmm. So Israel is trying to get on the good side of China, but that's not necessarily pleasing Washington, which wants to pivot towards China, confront China. And in fact, the other problem is that Israel sees Iran as public enemy number one. The United States would like to re-enter this nuclear deal with Iran not least because it wants to get on the good side of the European allies, so-called Britain, France, and Germany, who are pro this nuclear deal. The United States wants to get them on side so they can join the United States in confronting China. The whole game now is about confronting China. Yeah. That's why uh, Israel uh, might be uh, swept aside, but we shall see. <laughs> so we see two poles here. 
the white nationalists and the um, the the Republican Party having to express itself as support, you know openly um, supporters of it in 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 the United States, and then at the um, State Department level, how are they going to handle um, the continuous action of Israel being a rogue state um, in its in its sense, uh, uh, even though they've been claiming it was a partner? Yeah. Well, Israel's like the problem child. I don't know if any of you have ever raised children before, but you know, sometimes you have a problem child. You know, child won't listen. And that's what Israel is right now. It's a problem mm-hmm. child. And a problem child can oftentimes cause many problems for the parent. And that's what's unfolding as we speak. Dr. Horn, uh, let me, let me, I want to. A jump back because I guess we're going to do a lot of jumping during this conversation and then we'll uh, incorporate uh, some of the callers involved. Um, you mentioned in your article, and I, I want to go back to read a couple of uh, paragraphs here. It says, an attempt, in an attempt to build a class unity without confronting these underlying issues and tensions often uh, meant coercing oppressed nationalities blacks in the first place to co-sign a kind of left-wing nationalism. Um, now you talked white about, yes, excuse me, left-wing white nationalism. Now you talked about um, uh, confronting these underlying tensions among uh, the European settlers. Now let me read this second paragraph. It says, actually the class collaboration embodied in whiteness was seeking to impose class collaboration on the descendants of the enslaved, including us, uh, inducing us to align with enslavers and their descendants. And given that pre-1865 U.S. history and to a degree the era thereafter involved deputizing Euro-American settlers as a class to patrol and coerce the indigenous and the Africans, this too involved an often undetected class collaboration. It also involved us uh, often lush material incentives for those settlers who complied and harsh uh, disincentives for those who did not. What I really want you to break open is that, um, class collaboration that was imposed that were imposed on our ancestors and i see that also as what you stated earlier when i asked you about the plan strategy and you said a lot of times they were here flying by the seat of their pants right it uh, it, uh break that break into that for me because i see that as a sort of like flying by the seat of their pants they did use it as a strategy because they're still using it now but talk about that in relation to what they were doing. Well, first of all, regards to the settlers. The settlers it, it, well, actually, let me start with the November 2020 election, for example. Go ahead. People trying to say, well, how was it that 75 million people, mostly Euro-American, across class lines, voted mm-hmm. for this faux billionaire? Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's just the latest example of class collaboration. That is to say, if you go back to the settlements, Take the first English settlement in what is now North Carolina in the 1580s. The people who crossed the Atlantic, they weren't necessarily wealthy. They were sponsored by the wealthy. And so settler colonialism, which is what we're enduring now in North America, 
was a project involving class collaboration amongst poor and less poor or more wealthy Europeans, uh, those defined as white. And of course, there was a payoff for those settlers because they could share in the bounty of getting land stolen from the Native Americans, and then they could share in the bounty of buying, quote unquote, an African to work that land for free and therefore accomplish the so-called American dream and get wealthy. So that was a class collaborationist project, basically. But there was another uh, class project in North America, and that involves the cruelest class relationship of all, the enslaved versus the enslaver. Mm. We were not, for the most part, of course, there, you know, there have been Uncle Toms from the time the slavery was established, and we all know that so many slave revolts were betrayed by Uncle Toms, who got a payoff. But generally speaking, uh, the black folks who were enslaved were trying to resist class collaboration. They were trying to engage in arson, poisoning, murder, insurrections, etc., and then were punished even further. But as I said, in, in 2021, unfortunately, because of our ancestors struggling, we were able to push back against slavery, push back against Jim Crow to get where we are today. But that history is sort of an inconvenient truth for those who rule this country. So they try to get us to engage in a class collaboration by co-signing left-wing white nationalism by looking to Thomas Jefferson, a person who owned Africans and who has been credibly accused of being a sexual molester of young black women, half or less his age, that's supposed to be the unifying symbol, even by some who should know better. Speaking of some of these folks on the left, who oftentimes pride themselves on their alleged knowledge of reality and history. So that's basically where we are. Uh, that is to say that uh, a lot of theories of the, have come across uh, in the United States in 2021. In that article you quote, I use the example of the fictional French intellectual who says, well, I know what you're saying is true in fact and reality. The question is, is it true in theory? In other words, some people put the cart before the horse. They look to see if their theory is being materialized rather than looking at the facts on the ground and listen to what the facts on the ground are shouting in your ear. Hmm. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, the one thing um, as you raise about this that, that, that challenges me around this um, class um, conflict is within the um, um, today within the African or black community, um, black, I'm going to say community or amongst the black political elite, because it seems that, um, and I'm thinking of now as it relates to um, the different um, resistance that are taking place, um, Senegal, Uganda, Haiti, how is the um, Black political elite, Black bureaucrats that are coming in at, in these here high power positions, their relationship, their policy relationship to these countries that are based off of, um, uh, you know, this still um, American settler colon, co colonial 
um, positioning. Um, again, I, I asked it with not being sure I'm being clear, but it, does that provide, does that show uh, in, in what's going on that there may be some conflict um, in relationship to what Black people may be offering and supporting something when the resistance on the ground in these places are are really being anti-American, anti-imperialism, and 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 America is trying to create an inroad by placing these people now in these positions. Is that creating that class conflict um, that we're watching within the um, African American um, Black community as far as policymakers and bureaucrats? Well, with regard to policymakers, bureaucrats, intellectuals, they're in a very dicey position because oftentimes they have to go along with the line, basically. Uh, I mean, every country has a, a dominant political ethos. I mean, Cuba has a dominant political ethos, for example. It's not like the United States' dominant political ethos, but it's an ethos nonetheless. And those in leadership, those in policymaking positions are expected to go along with the ethos. But of course, as we well know, in the United States, a good deal of the ethos is inimical to the health and safety of uh, black people. More, more to the point, you're not allowed necessarily to dig that deeply in order to come up with a diagnosis or, or a prescription or a remedy. And I have a particular critique in this regard of scholars, because scholars like myself, you know, and there are many black scholars like myself who have tenure. That means you have what most working class people don't have. You have mm-hmm. lifetime security, unless, of course, something strange happens. For example, as the saying used to go, you're found in bed with a dead girl or a live boy. But other than that, you have a job, indefinite. So that's supposed to give you the ability to be fearless, to create, and supposedly the society as a whole will benefit. Well, unless you dig too deeply. (laughs) But many of these scholars, they don't really dig that deeply. I mean, many of them have retired and forgot to tell anybody. Or they're just recycling the tired old nostrums from the past and looking to their retirement date so that they can be put out to pasture. And maybe I'm being overly critical of these scholars, but that's what I see because I'm around these folks all the time. Now, with regard to Senegal, uh, Uganda, et cetera, well, we're coming up on the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd on tape, mm-hmm. and there were worldwide protests, the uh, African Union, and Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, wanted to launch an investigation of human rights practices in the United States of America. Uh, this would be, in a sense, unprecedented. And what happens is that the Trump regime freaks out. Secretary of State Michael Pompeo begins to issue threats. Mm-hmm. And so the investigation did not go forward. But it's easy to foresee that as the United States imperialism weakens in coming decades, that it will be less able to fend off international pressure 
for example, look at the front page of the New York Times this morning. There's an article in the right-hand column about demographic shifts in light of the mm-hmm. pandemic. Uh, you know, we're going through a baby bust in the United States. Uh, fertility is declining. But there's one, and that's happening worldwide except for one continent, which is Africa. And what jumps out in this article, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, is that according to certain projections, Nigeria will be the most populous nation on planet Earth by the end of the century, more mm-hmm. populous than China, which is also going through a baby bust. Now, if we had better trained and more progressive scholars, we could have a round table and put our heads together to try to figure out what, what are the implications of that. Uh, as it is, I'm left to my own brain to try to figure it out. Now, I don't, you know, a lot of things are going to escape me, I'm afraid to say. So certainly, uh, I, I think that your question points to the fact that we increasingly are going to have to internationalize our struggle, because after all, that's how we got to this point in the first instance. Uh, you mentioned a few moments ago how in my books I try to deal with the geopolitical considerations. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not an accident, because I'm afraid to say if it were just left to these people who we share North America with, we'd still be on the auction block. Right. So we had to leverage the international situation in our behalf, and that's what's missing today. And, and I have to throw this in. Uh, hope, throw this in there, and hopefully I'm I'm going to you know hit a, a target with it because what I see is the the increased funding going to HBCUs, and also it seems that there is some policy initiative to create relationship between as it relates to Africa, particularly the African continent and the countries there. And I'm wondering, you know, based off of what you're saying, is these institutions actually, uh, and the people who are in them, are they really um, making up the this creative policy or are they really carrying out, you know, even if this, um, this country's uh, international relationship is on life support, right? You know, or seem could be on going towards life support. Are they just going to be carrying that out? And that's what my concern is. Do you think that that's a a realistic or a reasonable concern at, um, that this money that's going to HBCUs and they're making the overtures to Africa and Howard um, being one um, that is dealing with um, construction of policy, foreign policy itself? Let me amend what I said a moment ago. When I was talking about scholars, I have to confess, I was really talking about people in history mm-hmm. uh, and not necessarily all scholars, because I think a lot of these are stories. They're really not digging that deeply, uh, mm-hmm. I'm afraid to say. Uh, that a lot of them are not, really not that productive. And as a matter of fact, one of the reasons I've been working so hard, I've been trying to make up the deficit, yeah, which you can't do as an individual, but you know, I'm, I'm trying my best. And... I'm working so hard because other people are basically asleep at the switch. Now, with regard, I mean, for example, you mentioned Howard University. Uh, I was talking to a professor at Howard just yesterday, heads a simultaneous translation unit. And Howard has one of the few units of this kind, which uh, trains people to do simultaneous translation in multiple languages. Now, that's going to be valuable uh, when we come to power. Mm-hmm. We'll need uh, people who can do simultaneous translations. So that's something that we cannot sniff at. 
Now, with regard to these donations that are going to HBCUs, well, see, th this is part of the rift that's developing because you'll notice that many of the Republicans are, are criticizing uh, Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola and Major League Baseball for their criticism of the Georgia attempt to engage in voter suppression through new legislation. And I think what's happening is that the U.S. ruling elite feels that in this competition with China, that they cannot afford to ignore the human capital in Black America. And so therefore you saw uh, Jeff Bezos, his ex-wife, mm -hmm. give mm -hmm. tens of millions of dollars to Prairie View A&M, HBCU in Texas, and Morgan State, HBCU in uh, Baltimore. And that's outraging many in the Trump base who, even though they don't want to admit it, they would like a full-fledged apartheid society. And so you have this rift between the corporate elite, many of whom want to exploit the human capital of Black America and feel that this might be useful in terms of working out business deals in Africa. Then you have the Trump base who say, hell no, you know, don't give these black people anything. <laughs> it reminds me, you know, I, I wrote this book on uh, called Jazz and Justice, Racism okay. in the Political Economy of the Music. And one of the scenes from that book takes place in the 1920s when there is a battle royal between organized crime on the one hand and the Ku Klux Klan on the other. Organized crime which is popularly referred to as the mafia, and I'm sure you're familiar with South Philadelphia. Right. Organized crime wants to exploit black musicians in the clubs. The Ku Klux Klan wants to exclude them. And so you have a battle royal between the two in organized crime, needless to say, triumphs, and black musicians win the right to be exploited. And if you fast forward 100 years, that's in a sense the dilemma that we're facing. You have one faction that wants to exclude us, have us go back to a kind of neo-slavery, and another faction that just wants to exploit our labor. And oftentimes, because of a lack of vision, I think our leaders and organizations don't see an alternative but to make an alliance with those who want to exploit us so as to fend off those who want to exclude us or turn us into neo-slaves. And they don't necessarily have a vision to try to lengthen the battlefield and to nationalize the struggle yes. and wind up coming to power themselves. I you know, appreciate that, you saying that. <laughs> Good, excuse let, me. Let, I want, in fact, that'll, that'll deal with some of the things that, uh, that I want to bring up as far as a strategy that we need to counter and defeat this white nationalism. Some of the things that you just spoke about, uh, Dr. Horn, uh, I want to break into them in the next portion. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to continue the conversation. You can get involved in the conversation, too. We see, I see a couple of callers up here on the board. I'll get them right in, uh, and you can get involved by dialing 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. We're in conversation with author, author historian, and chair of history, and African-American studies at the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn. We'll be right back. 
to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening. With host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger. Run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global Kometsu black family, to join your interconnected Kometsu black communities, escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. I am an African. The death of my brother is also my death. Let me put this question to you again, because many foolish black middle classes and many foolish people who are eating well think that they can sit in America and watch this country destroy the African continents and watch this country destroy African Caribbeans and watch this country destroy Africans in Central and South America and think that these same people who destroy Africans abroad will not be the same people who will destroy them in America. There are fools in this this country who try to claim that they are not Africans. 
who claim that they do not see color as if they're not seeing color makes any difference in the world. Simply because you don't see color doesn't mean somebody does not see you as color. And that's the issue. And you think then that you can sit in this country while this same nation and these same people that you sleep with and marry and love and so forth can go out and destroy African people and not think those people do not see you as African. Even though you choose not to see yourself as African, you better think again. You're out of your minds and you're headed for death. You must understand that. Hide behind it. I am an American. Ladies and gentlemen, the death and destruction of black people will follow those kind of abstractions. Probably the next five or ten years will indicate whether or not the black man can survive. Our struggle for survival is a very real struggle. And the white man has prepared genocide for black people. Unemployment, the black man is no longer necessary. Unemployment is going to be a way of life for black people. We are going to face increasing dangers and problems as the days pass. And we're totally unequipped as black people to deal with them. We're a part of a slave culture. We have no preparation. We have no black institutions capable of dealing with white racist institutions designed to serve only white people. We must deal with the problem that confronts black people by building black institutions, by understanding that only a separatist position is a viable position for black people. Any organization or any leader in America who today advocates integration is a foe and an enemy of black people and their survival in the coming years. this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, the political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football.
listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening. With host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media. Part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 812 here in the city of Philadelphia, and we're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our special guest this evening in conversation, author, historian, and chair of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn, is with us. White nationalism and its unbreakable link to U.S. imperialism and related topics is the topic of conversation this evening, and you can always join by dialing 215-490-9800. 32 that's 215 490 before I um Dr. Horn before I start talking about strategies that we need to incorporate and discuss and come up with to counter and defeat this white nationalism because my assertion is that we have been and especially in recent years we have been reacting to white nationalism instead of planning strategies against it. Uh, the leadership that we have <clears throat> is trying to legislate these behaviors out of some of the, uh, these oppressive people. And you can't legislate this stuff out of people. This, this stuff has been in uh, these populations since they've been here. And before they came to this continent, it's going to take plan strategies among our people to develop among the people that's here and our, the mentality and our young people coming up to move our people forward and defeat white nationalism because it can be defeated. It rose and it can be defeated. But before I go there and to talk about some of the strategies, let's see if we can get some of these calls involved that, that want to uh, speak. Let's go to Toronto and 647 Toronto. Toronto, are you there? Six four seven. Can you hear me? Let's put them back on hold. Hello. Okay, hold on. Let's go to six four seven again. Can you hear me, Toronto? Toronto, can you hear me? Let's uh, let's uh, let's move forward. Let's go to uh, Morristown, New Jersey. Morristown, are you there? Morristown, New Jersey. Uh, let's go to Atlanta, 404, Atlanta. Can you hear me? I hear y'all. I hear y'all. Hear me? I hear you. Y'all hear me, Elliot? Yes. Hey, look here, look here, Dr. Horn and Richard and Elliot. Uh, I'm looking at 60 Minutes right now, and we coming up on the uh, 100th anniversary of Tulsa. That's not the well, end, t- well, turn, turn your TV and down because it's feeding back. I know you're, you're watching. My TV's off, man. Well, something's feeding uh, back. You TV, gotta... I just, okay, I just turned it off, man. Okay, but uh, you hear me now, man? Yeah, that's a lot better. Well, uh, we're coming on the 100th anniversary of Tulsa, man. And uh, and see, Dr. Horn, this is my synopsis. I'm going under the, uh, this premises of our... Uh, 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 Dr. Jerome Fox by the addiction of white. So, sir, what I'm doing is what I, it worked for me. 
what I'm doing is instead of trying to change them white devils, I upgraded and changed my mind. Man, my, the mind is the last bastion of this thing right here. So, for example, whatever the oppressors like, I dislike. Whatever they do and say, I do the damn opposite, man. And it worked for me, man. So it, I look at the, uh, the art of war. Okay, instead of trying to damn fight the enemy without, you change the enemy within, and we got them, man. I don't celebrate none of their holidays. I don't. Uh, I might work with them on jobs or whatever, but that's far as I go with them devils, man. Okay, and, and that's the way I'm looking at it, man. And, and number another thing I have uh, changed. I, my my whole emphasis. I don't get no. I, I have disagreement with my own people, black people. I don't take it to no far. Whether I want to fight them or denigrate them or take a fracture side. So uh, that's what I'm about, man. I tell these young folks, man, and a lot of our people, when we argue and fight amongst ourselves, the enemy love that, man. So we got to stop taking our own soldiers out, man. So what you think about that, Dr. Horn? Well, if it works for you, I say right on. And let me say a point about Tulsa. Um 1921, May, June, 1921, a massacre. The estimate of the deaths was unclear, may have been many as 300. And part of the backstory of Tulsa that oftentimes is lost sight of is the fact that there were a number of Native American groupings who were in the Southeast, such as the Cherokees, who were slave owners. And that's why they were called civilized. But they were forced to move to Indian country, which turns out to be Oklahoma. Their movement is in the 1820s, 1830s. Many of the slave owners fight with the Confederates during the Civil War. But as you know, the slave owners lose. And unlike other slave owners, many of these Native American slave owners had to give up some of their wealth to the enslaved. And that's the roots of what is called Black Wall Street, but in Tulsa. But obviously that is found to be infuriating by many of the Euro-American neighbors, which leads directly to the rather successful attempt to destroy the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, to destroy Black Wall Street, et cetera. And you might've seen the testimony of this black woman, 107 years old, a survivor of the Tulsa massacre, as it has been called, testified on Congress just a few days ago. And she recalled that there were airplanes, because airplanes, at least in the North American context, come into being in 1903. Uh, By 1911, they're used in North Africa, Libya, by the Italian invaders. And by 1921, used on Black Tulsa, used to gun people from the air, to drop bombs from the air. And of course, the latter is no, uh, it's quite a, quite familiar to the people of Philadelphia in light of the so-called move bombing of uh, 30 odd years ago, 40 odd years ago. Yes, sir. Dr. Horn, I got one more question for you. All right. Hey, look here, man. Yes, we hear a lot about this. Uh... This CRT that they're trying to ban, this critical race theory. I thought Richard and somebody would have asked you about that earlier, man. <laughs> so it's all this about the truth coming out, man. They don't want us to tell the truth on the shit they've done us, man. 
Okay, so I'm gonna keep busting the truth. What the stuff they did, uh, even in Georgia, man. I, I, uh, when they came in 1735, we were doing good. So I tell the ace, man, when they talk about immigrants, they were easily, easily immigrants, man. Okay? But the 1735, when they came to Georgia, man, that's when they messed up uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, signs of the Declaration of Independence, the damn Gwinnett. Okay? And that's where they get Gwinnett County from, from Georgia, man. But to confound on this song, he. RT critical race theory that they don't want to hear nothing about, man. I mute myself, Richard. I love y'all, man. I don't want to talk too much. I want to hear the professor talk. I love y'all. Talk to you. <laughs> Let's go to. Oh, I... oh go, go ahead. Go ahead, Dr. Hall. Okay. So if you ask most of these Republicans who are trying to ban critical race theory, they couldn't even give you a definition. But quiet as it's kept, it's, it's just some philosophies that were developed by these law professors trying to figure out how racism is systemic and how it's structured in society. But these legislators who are trying to ban critical race theory, they basically don't want you to talk about slavery. That's what's happening in Texas right now, uh, because it's well known, at least by historians, that when Stephen F. Austin, Sam Houston, et al. seceded from Mexico in 1836, they seceded because Mexico had abolished slavery under a president of African descent mm-hmm. since they got out of And rather than accede to that, they bolted and set up independent Texas. And before long, Texas was one of the major slave trading nations on planet Earth. The Texas flag could be found off the coast of Angola in Southwest Africa and then off the coast of Brazil, the largest market of all for enslaved Africans. And with regard to Georgia, I talk about Georgia in my 1776 book, where I point out that the settlers who came to Georgia in the 1730s, they said no black people are allowed to live in Georgia of any kind, not even slaves. But of course, that quickly disintegrates because number one, uh, a number of the Euros didn't want to work in the fields. And then number two, it's introducing class contradictions amongst the Europeans when some are in the fields and some are in the big house, and that's causing uh, divisiveness and fractiousness. And so you need a black population so that the Euros can be united. And so voila, as of the 2010 census, Georgia had more black people than any other state in the United States. So obviously that plot failed. <laughs> let's, go, let's go to uh, Albuquerque 505. Are you there? I'm just listening. I'll put you back on hold. Let's go to let's go back to Toronto. They're, they're here. Uh, Toronto, six four seven. Toronto. Can you hear me, sir? I hear you now. Uh, I really was was just listening, but I I have a a question for Doctor Horn. Uh, you know, one of the people that you, you mentioned, Walter Rodney. One of the people that influenced Doctor Walter Rodney was a man by the name of William. Uh, Hinton, Alcus Hinton, and he passed away. He went to, uh, he was in uh, Ghana, and then when Nkrumah was overthrown, he briefly moved to Guinea, and then ultimately to Zambia, where he passed away. He also, his wife was, was by his side, and for the younger people, and for the progressive, uh, for, for the four progressive humanity, could you explain who the Hintons were and what, what was their contribution to the struggle 
for African and world liberation? Well, you're referring to William or W. Alpheus, A-L-P-H-A-E-U-S, Hunton, H-U-N-T-O-N, whose familiar roots, in a sense, were in Canada. Uh, As you probably know, uh, during the times of slavery, many black people fled to Canada because Canada was a British possession. Britain had abolished slavery in the 1830s. Canada, therefore, was so-called free territory. And uh, some of uh, W. Alpheus Hunton's uh, relatives, forefathers, actually uh, were with John Brown. When John Brown, in 1859, tried to lead an attempt to overthrow slavery in uh, what is now West Virginia, it was then Virginia. To fast forward, W. Alpheus Hunton, he becomes a, a professor at Howard, a radical professor at Howard University. But then he leaves to become a political activist. He's one of Paul Robeson's closest comrades, working shoulder to shoulder in the Council on African Affairs, which Robeson founded in 1937. Uh, Hunton uh, wound up going to jail for a brief time because of his political beliefs. I guess you could call him a political prisoner. And then when Nkrumah comes to power in Ghana in 1957, uh, he's amongst the numerous black Americans who moved to Ghana. Uh, He's working with W.B. Du Bois, who also moved to Ghana in 1961 on the Encyclopedia Africana. But then, as you know, February 1966, Nkrumah was overthrown, not least because, I'm afraid to say, of assistance from certain black Americans, such as Franklin Williams, a former NAACP official, who was the U.S. ambassador to Ghana at the time of the overthrow. Uh, As you suggested, then Hunton and Nkrumah, they moved to Guinea Conakry under Seiko Toure, a neighboring West African nation. But finally, uh, Hunton winds up in Zambia in Southern Africa, a frontline state during the anti-apartheid battles, and dies there and is buried there. And Kenneth Kaunda, the founding father of, of Zambia, of course, uh, cries at his grave. So that's a thumbnail sketch of one W. Alpheus Hunt. And I you, thank you for the correction, but I was thinking about the man. There was a brother by the name of Hinton who sang that song. Ain't it funny how time slips away? So that's that's oh, that's what that's that's what threw me off. But uh, you I didn't and I didn't know the, I didn't know the Canadian part. I'm 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 learning something every day. Thank you. Right on. Thank you for your contribution. Let's go to Delaware, 302. 302, Delaware, are you there? Yes, I'm here. How are you brothers doing tonight? Great. Uh, I came in late, so I'm kind of not up on the uh, topic. Uh, I just want to listen in. All right. I'll put you back on hold. All right. Let's go to BK. BK, are you there? You broke up, BK. BK? Doesn't want to speak. Let's go to. Uh, to, to let's go to. Wait a minute. Let's go back to Marstown. They, they're back on the line. Let's go to Marstown. Marstown, New Jersey. Marstown. Let's put them back on hold. Let's go to. Uh, uh, Richard, we got somebody here that I know is going to lend some. Some uh, understanding to this topic. Let's go to uh, Detroit. 
And Professor Earl Henderson is on the line. Professor Henderson. Hey, Brother Elliot. How you doing there, brother? How are you, sir? Uh, what's up, man? Oh, just fine. Hey there, Brother Richard. So good to hear you. Yes, it's sir. So good Thank to you. hear uh, Professor Horn. Uh, I never miss an opportunity when I can uh, listen to Professor Horn. I think I saw you last in Detroit. But um, but I, I want to um, hopefully not take you too far afield. I, I'm enjoying. I'm, I'm I got you know I've been reading your books for for quite a while. But um, I'm I'm into jazz and justice now. I'm flipping between that and the, the rise and fall of the Associated Negro Press. So I'm going into other aspects of your uh, your writing um, beyond the uh, the history, which is so rich. But I want I want to ask you this question, though, um, um, Professor Horn, without taking it too far afield. And that's this: How, how much of this, uh, or if you can give me a, a references for or in your own work, because I know you you talk so much about the impact of slavery. And to demystify some of these, uh, the American Revolution as an actual counter-revolution. Um, but, but Brother Horn, do you have like sources for, and this is what I'm trying to get, what proportion of what was called at the time mercantile trade was actually slave trade? Because what I'm getting at is that they, they hide so much of this stuff in euphemisms in the history. So as we read it, sometimes we don't even know that's what we read. So when they're talking about mercantile trade and, and the wars associated with this, from the from the League of Augsburg to the uh, to the War Pickens here, all the way up to the American Revolution, they'll talk about trade and commerce as a fuel for some of these wars. But how much of this mercantile trade, I would ask you, was actually slave trade from like the 1600s on? And is there good sources for that? I, I find pockets of it in different works, and of course in your work, but not for like. For the major powers from 1600 to uh, uh, 1800 or 1850, how much of that mercantile trade was actually slave trade? That's, that's what I would like to ask, brother. Well, a good deal of it is. I think in order to get a comprehensive picture, you're going to probably have to do what you've been doing, which is cherry picking, looking at mm. this work, that work, etc. cetera. Yes, um, I would say this, that the African slave trade, of course, is one of the most lucrative uh, forms of commerce known to humankind, you can invest $1 and reap $1,700. Mm. There are those who would sell their firstborn child for a 1,700% profit, uh, let alone some African they did not know. And it's also fair to say that the African slave trade was driving politics. As I suggested in my book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, it, all, it drove the revolt against British rule that led to the formation of the United States because there was a lurking fear in the settlements that, that is to say, Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, et cetera, that London was moving towards abolition of slavery for various reasons that I won't detail here, and that that would jeopardize the fortunes of the slave owners who led the revolt, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, James Madison. They're all slave owners. Yes, sir. And then 1836, as noted, when Texas uh, secedes from Mexico, that's too driven by slavery. As a matter of fact, I'm doing a, some research on Texas now and Mexico. And so you know that there's this border between Texas and Mexico called the, the Rio Grande, what, what we call the Rio Grande. And if you're, if you're uh, some sort of uh, knowledge of um, streams and rivers, you may be familiar with avulsion. That's when the stream shifts. And so what happens is that you had Texas slave owners in South Texas 
and you have an avulsion, and they find out that their land now is in Mexico. <laughs> oh, so then, so then and slavery is illegal. And so therefore, the Africans are free because of the avulsion. But in any case, and then in 1861, you have the last dying effort to set up an independent country because of slavery, uh, which is, of course, the failed Confederate States of America. So you are correct to suspect that a lot of commerce is actually commerce and enslaved Africans. And indeed, on the eve of the U.S. Civil War, 1860, the most valuable investment in property and asset in the United States was not the factories, not the mines, it was the Africans. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why the slave owners are still, and their descendants are still furious because as a result of the war, they lost that investment. Interestingly enough, when Britain abolished slavery in Jamaica, Antigua, Trinidad and Tobago, Barbados, et cetera, Britain, of course, they didn't give the enslaved reparations, but they did compensate the slave owners. And in fact, as recently as 2015, the descendants were still being paid off. When mm. the slave owners in this country were expropriated, their property was taken, they weren't compensated. And of course, their descendants are still angry, which is one of the reasons you had January 6th. And one of the reasons why they're still trying to push us back to neo-slavery to compensate for that gargantuan loss in 1865. Thanks so much, Professor Horn. And I, your work has been just inspirational. You're just, just a model, a scholar, activist, and your scholarship is just tremendous. So I still don't understand how you produce such quality work uh, over and over and over again across a range of subjects, but it's an example to so many of us. And I just want to thank you. And, and thank you, brothers Elliot and Richard, for, for, for bringing him on, on the show and discussing. You, if, if, I can, can, if I can, while both of y'all are here, you know, and, and let me say, I finally finished the book. So we, I'm, I'm, I'm coming. I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> but um, something you said, um, Professor Horn, and something I believe you, you raised in relationship to theory and being not some, and I'm, um, maybe I'm, I'm bastardizing it, not something abstract, but something you have to view, formulate from what's taking place on the ground. I'm mm -hmm. taking both of you are agreeing with that position that theory has to be developed from what is actually taking place from the ground, on the ground. Well, generally speaking, I would say yes. I mean, uh, what to, to turn the coin over, if you have a theory that's disconnected from what's happening on the ground, <laughs> you're, you're basically lost in the sauce. I mean, I think in that article uh, that was so kindly quoted on um, against uh, left-wing white nationalism, I'd say that the theory is the skeleton and the history and the reality is the flesh. And so if you don't have the flesh, you're basically left with a bag of bones, or as I say, a putrefying cadaver, which is basically worthless. And I would just say it, it needs to be empirical, it needs to be grounded in, in your historical reality, but it can forecast what other folks have not imagined as well. But it's not some blind seeking of the uh, you know, one's, one's imagination. It's not a stream of consciousness. It's grounded in empirical realities, like Professor Owen said. But it can go beyond that as well. Uh, but, but it's important to, to see it. Uh, when I'm talking about theory, empirical theory, something that's going to guide your practice and mainly because it's going to guide your strategy and, 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 and prepare you for counter strategy. 
and that's why in theory is way more than just hunch or idle speculation. So yeah, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I want to hear more, Professor Horn. I really, and I'm like I said, uh, I'm going through several of your books at once, Professor Horn, and and they're, they're so uh, rich theoretically and practically and pragmatically as well, but also for those of us who are who are uh, 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 putting together our own scholarship to build on your work and your insights too. Um, and it, it's just really, um, I mean, you, you're just an exemplar uh, of excellent scholarship and, and practice. So I, I just want to thank you as well. Right on. Thank you for your contribution. Thank Professor you. Anderson, talk to you soon. Yes, sir. Okay, talk to you soon, brother. Right. Right. Uh, uh, Dr. Horn, the um, the strategies that you talk about, and you mentioned one strategy in particular here at the end of the article, um, and us trying to coalesce to defeat. And, and I'll repeat it again. I, I don't think that we've been developing solid strategies to defeat white nationalism. I think we've been reacting to things that have happened to our people and, uh, you know, we've put uh, a lot of our people have put all of their eggs or the majority of their eggs in a political basket, thinking that they can legislate this behavior out of people when it's I don't think that that's uh, entirely true. I don't think that's true at all. But let me read what one of the strategies that you mentioned here at the end of the article uh, in the in the uh, the heading was forging alliances beyond U.S. borders. Um, one of the strategies here says in uh, linking demands for reparations nationally with like-minded struggles in the Caribbean and Africa. Mm. Uh, go into that for our listening audience as a strategy to help our people defeat white nationalism and, and U.S. imperialism. Talk about that from your perspective, Dr. Horn. Well, point number one, of course, is that the Caribbean, in a sense, is much more advanced than we are with regard to reparations, which is understandable because Caribbean nations have sovereignty. I mean, they're independent states. They have votes at the United Nations. i never forget when 30-odd years ago, on the eve of uh, Namibian independence, I'd gone there to do some journalism. And one of the things that struck me was all the folks there from Barbados and Jamaica and Antigua, because Namibia was basically being uh, administered by the United Nations, and every nation in the United Nations has a quota in terms of the job. And many of the Caribbeans decided to make all their quotas for Namibia. So we don't have a quota at the United Nations because we don't have sovereignty. So, you know, we're, we're a subject oppressed people. And so they are more advanced with regard to reparations, understandably, because they can make alliances. They have diplomatic missions in, all over the world, in China and Cuba and elsewhere. We could have diplomatic missions all over the world if our leaders and organizations were more farsighted. Mm. And these diplomatic missions could then uh, make deals and pressure the United States like we were trying to pressure the United States last year in the wake of the George Floyd killing. And so I think ultimately we're going to have to internationalize the struggle. And I, and I say that's for a number of reasons. One, I think organizationally it might be wise 
for certain organizations to have some of their cadre migrate, leave the United States to certain West African nations, certain Caribbean nations, because this nation is taking a very dismal and dangerous and perilous turn. And we're going to have, we're going to need folks who we are familiar with to mobilize on our behalf in the international community in case it gets even more dangerous. Now, obviously, what I'm suggesting requires a certain structure, requires a certain organization. Yes. Uh, but but uh, I'm not sure if we have that many alternatives. And uh, so that's that's just one point that I was trying to make in that last paragraph. You know, very interesting perspective on that, Richard. Um, yeah. Any yes, uh, you comment because I, I want I want to mention mention something else in reference to so what, what you said earlier. But go ahead. No, that that's um, I I agree wholeheartedly, and that's what I don't see. Um, you know, it, it, um, black political leadership making those kind of moves, and uh, whether it be locally from um, you know city um, city kind of sister city relationships um, based off of, or or understanding nationally, I don't you know um, I don't I don't see that um, being made. So I but I agree that that that. That to me is paramount as, as from the context that is being mentioned. So, you know, um, before we go to the next call, uh, you mentioned earlier, Richard, about the um, the large sums of money given to uh, certain HBCUs, and, and we see it almost. Uh, I th- uh, who, who somebody got an endowment the other day that was largest in the history of the university. Um, I'm not sure which. Uh, HBCU it was, but we see large sums of money now being poured into historically black colleges. And I look at it like you were saying, uh, Dr. Horn, when you drew the analogy of the uh, Trump white nationalists uh, going back and forth with quote unquote, the liberal faction. Um, I think their objective is the same. When I say their objective is the same, their ultimate objective is to preserve white nationalism. Their strategies are different. Now, you mentioned in the article, and we talked about it earlier, a strategy that was adopted or instituted back in the 1800s of coercing oppressed nationalities, and you mentioned blacks, to co-sign left-wing white nationalism. I believe that strategy is still prevalent today, getting uh, blacks in certain stratas or, or, or levels of power, quote unquote power, to cosign white nationalism. I believe that's the strategy now. And as far as pouring money into black universities, uh, they see what's happening in China and other nat- uh, other nations in the world, and they want to make sure and I'm just using layman's terms, make sure that they have a large number of blacks here in America that's on their side, on the side of white nationalism. Uh, I think more and more that we really need to coalesce, talk with one another, and try to come up with a solid strategy that we can all understand that will work for the benefit of our children in the future and not for the benefit of uh, 
me presently or Richard presently, I, I, I think a lot of our people that is in leadership is looking for what would benefit them in the short run instead of looking for what's going to benefit our children and children's children in the long run. And if I have to jump in and add, and this is what I was trying to go to for your your reaction, um, Dr. Horn, is that because within the Black community, there is a class divide that I believe we cannot deny. Um, and when we're talking about those who will be going to HBCUs and those who who can't at this present, um, we we have to, I'm, 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 I'm projecting that we have to, realize that it's it's going to service any reparations will service the benefit of some if a not a a comprehensive understanding and policy is made that deals with the diversity and the, the, the divide the class divide that exists within the black community separate from what goes on in relationship to our our class divide our our really no class position within um white domination white hegemony um, I don't know if that's, but that's the way I'm characterizing. I don't, I, you know, adding to what Elliot said, um, th- that seems to be important to take in consideration also. Well, sure. And I think with regard to the money going to the HBCUs, I, I'm, I'm of uh, two minds about it. As I said before, when we come to power in North America, we're going to have to draw on the resources of the simultaneous translation unit at Howard University, because, I mean, I was on a webinar yesterday with regard to other black people in the hemisphere from Brazil, Colombia, uh, actually there were people from all over the world, but it was focused on the hemisphere. And so, you know, we had simultaneous translation because everybody doesn't speak English, believe it or not. And it was very helpful. The translators were all very good. And as I said, Howard University has one of the few units that can do that. So I, I think, we also need to think about these organizations and of what use they can be. I mean, I've oftentimes, uh, I've written a lot about the NAACP over the years, especially earlier in my writing career. Uh, I'm not, I haven't written about it that much recently. And the NAACP made a, a fateful move in the late 1940s, early 1950s, when they ousted the influence of people like Paul Roper or, of mm. course, wound up in Philadelphia, a stone's throw from where you're sitting. Yes. Of course, there's a Paul Robeson house so still in West Philadelphia. Right. And um, that that really crippled the organization. I don't think the organization has recovered because Paul Robeson, you know, he spoke dozens of languages, sang in dozens of languages. If you're talking about uh, posting uh, our folks abroad, you need people with that sort of outlook. But it doesn't happen. And so it's sort of stuck trying to cut deals with the left-wing nationalists against the left-wing white nationalists versus the white right-wing white nationalists, which basically means you're treading water. <laughs> and it basically means that you're, you're sort of uh, running in place. Wow. <laughs> let's go. Let, uh, let's go to Durham, North Carolina. Look like uh, Professor Darity is on the line. Durham. Uh, hi, uh, I, I actually didn't have any questions. I'm just uh, listening in. <laughs> okay, thank uh, you, sir. I'm I'm uh, very appreciative of uh, 
of Professor Horn's insights, particularly his idea that we need to forge uh, relationships with uh, the international community of black people. Thank you for your contributions. So I'm looking to get you on again soon. You know, um, Richard, um, and and I don't want to shift gears right now, but uh, I, I did want to um, add to the conversation because uh, Dr. Horn did a book on um, the uh, rise and fall of uh, the Associated Negro Press. And that's one thing that's woefully needed now is an independent black press that's going to put the truth out there and just speak truth to power, no matter who it hurts, whether it hurts members of our community for not uh, listening to the grassroots of the community or listening to certain classes, because we can see from what you stated, uh, Dr. Horn, and, and our historical experience here, that a lot of these classes that exist among black folks here was created by European oppressors to help them, in essence. Um, the the need, the woeful need of a independent black press, um, I think, was was uh, struck a blow um, when when uh, black radio was uh, was hurt with that Telecommunications Act in uh, nineteen ninety four. Um, Dr. Horn, just talk about the need for us to have independent black media that'll deal with these issues. It's important issues coming up that's really going to be a barometer and affect the the lives and future of our children. And it's important for black media, not controlled black media, but an independent source that'll help put information out here. I, I think a blessing, to be honest, and I'm just looking at it from just a layman's perspective is this uh, internet because it allows certain black media to really put information out there to have guests on like yourself and Dr. Darity, who was just on P professor Earl Henderson to have these men talk directly to the black community, which you won't see. And it's sad to say you won't see it on some of these, uh, 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 popular black media or or what is that urban themed black media that might be controlled by other people I, I think it's important to to really get these messages out here talk about it from your perspective uh, Dr. Horn because you wrote the book on the uh, the rise and fall of the associated black press yeah the associated negro press it comes into existence about 100 years ago under the leadership of Claude Barnett who was a disciple of Booker T. Washington he was a businessman. But what's interesting about the ANP is that it had correspondents all over the world. And oftentimes, you know, since he was a businessman, he didn't pay very well. Um, but if like Duke Ellington's band went overseas, he would enlist one of the members of the band to file stories about what's going on in that particular country. All the leading black writers, including Richard Wright, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, they all wrote for the Associated Negro Press. Their 
archives are in Chicago. And I'll never forget when I was doing research for that book, going through the, uh, the documents, a piece of state, a piece of Hitler stationery was in the, the, uh, was in the files because one of their reporters was in Berlin in May, 1945, when Hitler was, his regime was collapsing and filed a story on Hitler stationery in longhand and then mailed it back to Chicago. So the, the problem with the Associated Negro Press was that Claude Burnett, the leader, well, it was a couple of problems. One is that he was a businessman, and so therefore he was willing to make compromises. For example, in the 1950s, he's writing the uh, Belgium co colonial administrators in Congo, which is one of the most exploited places on planet Earth, both then and now, for that matter. And he's railing against the Belgians in Congo. And then you get down to the last paragraph, and he says, by the way, I collect African art. So do you think we can, you know, make some deals, oh, <laughs> basically? And so that, that sort of compromises everything he had said beforehand. But the, only, the other problem was, I'm afraid to say, is that he had a sort of monopoly on black writers because New York Times wouldn't hire them. The Philadelphia Inquirer wouldn't hire black writers. But with the era of desegregation, there was more competition, and, uh, you know, he, he wasn't willing to pay. And so mm -hmm. the enterprise began to sink. And then, as African nations are coming to independence, they developed their own press. And they don't necessarily need the Associated Negro Press to tell them what's happening in Africa because they're developing their own press. And so by 1967, it basically goes kaput. But I do think that what's happening now opens up some interesting possibilities. For example, if you look back a shift from newspapers to another medium, which is film, which is another one of my interests, in light of the pandemic, uh, you know, Hollywood has been hemorrhaging cash. And theater chains have been closing because people don't want to go into these enclosed spaces. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening right now is that streaming is becoming the mode for distribution for film. And that helps to explain uh, AT&T uh, basically trying to get rid of Time Warner, which it bought and then fought the Trump administration on antitrust grounds and now it's merging with Discovery. They're all trying to compete with Netflix and, Di and Disney Plus. And so with streaming, what happens is that there's this idea that there are niche markets and that uh, black, the black community is not only a niche market, it's, a, it's an influencer market. As everybody knows, the black community helps to influence music, helps to influence popular culture. And so um, I, I, was, I, I do interviews myself on, on a radio station in Los Angeles. So I was interviewing this leading black producer and I, I put forth the premise that with the pandemic, that uh, perhaps the black people in the film industry would be suffering. But he was saying, well, no, because of streaming, it opens more possibilities for raising capital to put on films, to make films. And so that's something to con consider as well. But back to the press, certainly we need more independent black, black organs. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the Black News Channel, 
that yeah. just came online. Yes. Uh, do you know much about it? Well, um, uh, one of the uh, uh, young brothers from here, uh, Mark Lamont Hill, uh, just got a job on uh, as a commentator. He used to be with CNN, uh, was teaching here at Temple University here. But, you know, I, I don't know too much about it, to be honest. I, I know uh, when it was being formulated, it was a lot of things going around saying it was going to be the black a black fox, and some of the people involved, J.C. Watts, uh, Larry Elder, uh, both of them staunch black conservatives. So you know it, it was uh, it was already a uh, a stain put on them as far as I was concerned. But I haven't, to be honest, I haven't really watched it. Well, you know they've called me a few times. Okay, my understanding is that the chief shareholder is the Pakistani-American guy who controls the Jacksonville Jaguars football team. Yes. Now, I'm not sure if that changes anything, particularly in light of the fact that they just offered a contract to Tim Tebow, the washed-up quarterback, to be a tight end. (laughs) I'm not sure what that reveals or exposes on any level. But in any case, I will say they called me a couple times, and, you know, they they, they, they seem to be trying to do the right thing, although I I don't know that much about yeah, well, listen, I but know. That, Go but ahead. doesn't that raise a question about, what Elliot raised about them, um, at least Watts and, and the other person being black conservatives in this whole, um, the, the, the fight between um, white nationalist conservatives and corporate um, um, Republican conservatives, we, we, they're openly fighting amongst themselves. Um, how does the black conservatives fall into this matrix of and, and the, the term that you used earlier as far as being, you know, uh, aligning themselves. I mean, I mean, it, it, either side, I, 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 how, do, how does that work to, in, in, to your view if, if that's a realistic assessment? Well, I, I, I think black conservatives are going to wind up being useful idiots. What I mean is, is that right now at this stage of the struggle, the conservatives want to beat back the charge that they're racist. And the way they do it is to have these black front men like Uncle Tim, Uncle Tim Scott, the <laughs> senator from South Carolina. But as I see things, what, a worst-case scenario, and the worst-case scenario would be basically hell on earth for us, worst-case scenario if these white conservatives as they're seeking to gain all levels of power, I think uh, Uncle Tim and Larry Elder and J.C. Watt are going to be expendable. Mm. That's what I mean by useful idiots. I mean, they'll, they'll help uh, these uh, white nationalists, right-wing white nationalists, defend off charges that they're racist. But once they grab all levels of power, they won't need them anymore. <laughs> they'll become expendable. They'll be indicted on spurious grounds. You know, they'll have plane crashes, car accidents, you know, the usual. Mm. That's that's, some, that's, uh, that's that's going to be interesting to watch that power dynamics because there's an as there definitely is a, a contingent of of young um, black conservatives that are being um, cultivated out there, and I just don't see how where they where they fit in relationship to the um, this push and pull of conserv of conservatism um, itself, but yeah. 
But you know what? It, it's kind of funny you mentioned that, Richard, because when I mentioned before that they are objective, whether you're talking about these warring factions of, of a, a, a European political uh, forces, so to speak, their objective is the same, to preserve white nationalism. Mm-hmm. They just got different strategies. And, 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 and the, the perfect example of that to me was that, quote, unquote, debate that went around and they asked after Tim Scott made the comments, they asked Kamala Harris, they asked Jim Clyburn, they asked others in black media about his comments about America being a racist uh, society. And they all agreed basically with Tim Scott. So that just, I mean, that's a perfect example of our conversation this evening. Uh, not that they're necessarily out of touch with their own people in the, and, and what we have historically went through and what we're still going through, but they have brought into um, being political entrepreneurs and they want to tout the party line and to basically keep their job. Let's go to uh, Newport News. Newport News? Uh, good evening. I Brother, uh, Brother Elliot, I got in late. Dr. Horn, I appreciate it. I'm trying to find enough money to get through all of your books, but I don't know <laughs> if I'm going to live long enough. I'm 67. But in response to what we're talking about with the the GOP finding people of color to put out front to, to kind of fend for them, I'm an old country dude from Yorktown, Virginia. In the sixth grade, I wrote a report talking about the impact of 1710 meritorious manumission only because I happened to see a roadside marker when I was doing some work in Gloucester, Virginia with my father. To this day, I still believe that is the most effective thing that white people have done to black people to stop us from working for the collective. I'll leave it there and see what your comments are. To stop us from working for the collective. Mm. Well, let, let me go back to the statement by Uncle Tim. And while I'm making this remark, you can clarify what the last caller said so I can respond to it. So, you know, so Uncle Tim says, and this is a response to Biden's speech, hear me clearly. America is not a racist country. And then they go to Clyburn. Now, Clyburn, he must know better. I mean, he's in South Carolina. (laughs) This is one of the most racist places on earth. But I think what it illustrates is the the compromises that people feel they have to make in order to maintain their position so in their mind they can continue to garner concessions that they feel will be helpful to us at least in the short term i understand their reasoning but i think ultimately that that sort of agreement is is rather destabilizing and disorienting for our community yes because it gives us a false sense of security Mm -hmm. i mean people need to be told that yeah it's a racist society it's systemic it's baked into the system it's baked into the bones of the culture Mm -hmm. and uh anything else it seems to me is misleading so now, can you clarify what the caller said so I can respond? Well, let me. I'm gonna get him to uh, restate what he uh, what he stated. Go, go ahead. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I I thought I was just connected because no, I was on blue. No, screen. no. He wanted you to restate what you mentioned about the uh, 1710 uh, mer- oh, meritorious. I, I, 
I was into him as a youth. I, I crossed the York River on the Coleman Bridge. I'm from Yorktown, Virginia. And I read a, a roadside marker talking about the first time 1710 meritorious manumission came to this country. So I keep saying that I believe it is one of the most effective policies ever instituted in this country because it stops us from working as a collective. And I think it helps to create the Tim Scotts, the, the Burgess Owens, and the other football player that can't talk very well is from your area. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Okay. Maybe she's talking about Herschel Walker. <laughs> yeah, I think he is. <laughs> Donald J. Trump's closest comrade. Yeah, I think but he is. Certainly, I think just to get to the final point, that it's imperative that we find a way to try to work together. Yes. Even my own political philosophy is that you can – Every ally doesn't have to be a long-term ally. That can be a short-term ally. In other words, you, I might even be able to work with Jim Clyburn on some sorts of short-term policy concerning getting the government to send more checks to people who are unemployed, for example, or getting more aid to the homeless. But those are short-term relationships. I'm not obviously I wouldn't collaborate with him on the idea that U.S. is not a racist country. So that, that that's the kind of tactical nimbleness that we need nowadays, at least in my opinion. Before we uh, kind of wind things down, let's go to Oberlin, Ohio. Oberlin, are you there? Yeah, I'm right here, man. Um, I just want to say uh, thank you for your guests. Thank you for bringing them on. Like, this man is really, really, really informative and really, like, about it. Like, you know, all grace to you, uh, Dr. Horn. Um, I I want to ask a really good question. I'm trying to I'm, – I'm just thinking about one. I guess the one question I would have is in terms of strategy, like, what about, like, the, uh, the black uh, – the marriage rate and the black uh, – uh, rate of wedlock. Do you think that that has an impact on, you know, just the family unit and strong family units and how that, you know, along with, um, you know, redlining and, and uh, the, the uh, you know, the great society welfare programs that basically, you know, kind of tore apart the family, keeping the man out the home. How did, how do these things factor in, in at least, you know, the last, you know, 50 years, how do these things factor into, how what kind of strategy we can have because i feel like black men and black women are definitely we can't do it as atomized black people we have to have family structure about this what are your thoughts on that sir oh before i answer the question are you a student at oberlin college oh no 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 i i just live in town man I, i'm born and bred here man <laughs> okay fair enough because I, I i spoke there last year uh, but in any case um Certainly, I mean, if you start with slavery, uh, there was obviously a destabilization of the black family. I mean, you can believe what you saw mm -hmm. in these movies about slavery, where the father could be sold down the river and the mother could be sold up the river. And the children, some of the children sold to the west, some of the children sold to the east. And so obviously this is very disorienting. It's very destabilizing for the family unit. 
it's clear that post-1865, post-slavery, it's difficult for the family unit to stay intact when there's rampant exploitation, when there's the convict lease system, whereby, in, say, in Texas, where there is a material incentive to arrest black men and then to put them behind bars and then hire them out to do work as farm laborers or whatever kind of labor. So I think that it inherits in this system under which we labor to be inimical to the interests of the black family unit. However, as you know, black family units are evolving. And now I would like to reiterate what I said a few moments ago uh, with regard to what's happening in the United States, with regard to uh, the baby bus, not only with regard to the black community, it's happening all across the United States, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a demographer, so I haven't thought through all the consequences of that. But if children are not being born, because people oftentimes feel that A, they feel the world is too crazy and they don't wanna bring children into this world, or B, they don't feel they have the income to support a child. Well, the long-term prognosis is obviously going to be very grim and very glum. So we, in the short term, that's where we work with Jim Kleinburn to try to make it possible for families to feel that they have enough income to bring children into the world. Because if we get on that track of not reproducing, uh, I'm not sure what that leads to. You know, um, I, I was as as we're we're talking and we're talking about strategies, you know, um, coming out and I'm thinking of the, the, the juxtaposition of the two books that you wrote, one that counter revolution and, and, and the slave resistance and the other one, um, the black Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking, I'm asking myself, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm thinking out loud, um, is the resistance that we seen with, um, um, what's that? Was that uh, the um, recently George Floyd? Is that the type of resistance that we are having now in relationship to this settlers' co- uh, colony, or are, are because they they seem to be different? What you described in those two instances, you give uh, examples of different fears that um, um, white owners had. In relationship to the slave resistance, and we see with with in IT or Haiti, um, the the actual um, victory that comes out of that resistance. Well, I, for us here in North America, I don't, I, I'm not clear. Um, and I, I, what the how is this resistance occurring? Is yeah, I guess that's the summation of that from the from placing it in those two historical um, moments and, and, and activities. Um, you mean how we're resisting today and how yeah, we're yeah, yeah. in the past? Yes, yes. Oh, I see. Well, I mean, obviously the resistance, you know, Vincent Harding, I, I'm not sure if he's still alive. He once wrote a book called There is a River. And he yeah, had, yeah. The metaphor was our struggle being this ceaseless flowing river. And uh, I think that that's an apt metaphor that uh, from our landing on these shores, as a matter of fact, in my 16th century book, of course, I talk about 
how the Spanish from their perch in Santo Domingo uh, bring enslaved Africans to what is now South Carolina in the 1520s to try to establish a settlement, but the Africans revolt back to the Native American side and chase the Spanish back to the Caribbean, which creates an opening for the English, and which is one of the reasons why we're now in North America speaking English. And so there is a river. I mean, there is this uh, ineluctable path of struggle uh, that connects us to the 1520s, to the Haitian Revolution, to the overthrow of slavery in 1865, to the pushback against Jim Crow, to the post-George Floyd protests of May, June 2020, uh, up to this very moment when people in Philadelphia are, protect, are protesting understandably and justifiably about the blasphemous mm-hmm. misuse of the bones I know it. Mm-hmm. of folks who survived the move bombing in the mid-1980s in Philadelphia. I mean, it, the struggle continues. Mm-hmm. The struggle continues to this very day. And all we need to do is to try to channelize this river, come up with more international strategies to try to build bridges across the oceans and across the borders, because that's really the missing link. And uh, as I said, I think we're at a very dangerous moment. And if we're not careful, uh, we could find ourselves uh, heading backwards at 100 miles an hour. Dr. Horn, I want to thank you for spending some time with us this evening. I want to get you back on sometime in the future because I want to discuss one of my favorite subjects when I'm not uh, on time for awakening is boxing. Uh, Your your book on boxing is very interesting. I want to get you back on here so we can talk about it. And maybe I'll mix it a little bit of the book on W.E.B. Du Bois because it's it's always an interesting topic talking with him. He was definitely a renaissance man. His life went full circle. He experienced some of the things that you talk about in your work and then was able to look at himself, give a self-assessment, and then put it right back out there to the people that he that thought like him maybe 30 or 40 years ago. It, it's He had an interesting life, and I always like to talk about him, but I want to get you back on to talk about the uh, your, your assessment of boxing. Well, yeah, for sure, because, you know, it's a lot of Philadelphia history in that boxing book. Oh, most definitely. And, and, and I have to say, um, because I heard their interview with Dr. CBS, and I didn't know, well, um, boxing, jazz, and it was another one that you, I believe it was three. And and my interest, um, being from Philadelphia, born, raised around in that uh, Italian uh, community um, where, you know, the, the mafia, the center of that. So I'm, I'm familiar with that experience. And you're making the connection of the, and you just brought it up earlier, um, of how the mafia relationship so I have to. I haven't read them yet, but I, I, I want to. Um, when when we do get you back and Elliot and y'all dealing with the boxing part, I'm looking at like these because I'm wondering how the uh, the mafia was used during the Cuba uh, episode. So at the point oh. of the State Department, and what does that mean in relationship to their involvement at the highest level of government um, in military? Um, even to today. 
it'll be my pleasure to talk about that. It's one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> Wait a minute. Before you leave, uh, another call. Let, uh, you got room for one more call, uh, Dr. Horn? Sure. Yeah, sure. Let's, go, let's go to 215. 215? Hey, hey, Brother Elliot. How you doing? How are you, sir? I'm going fine. Hey, uh, brother, brother Richard and Dr. Mm-hmm. Horn, good, good show tonight. Dr. Horn, I just want to say a couple things to you. First, it's an honor, like, like the brother said, it's an honor to have you on tonight, Dr. Horn. And, you know, we mentioned Texas, Dr. Horn. As you, we mentioned Texas to Brother Elliot and Brother Richard earlier. You know, Texas is one of them states, Dr. Horn, as you well know. They always wanted to succeed from the United States. That's been the talk for Texas for years. Since I've been, I'm a 59-year-old black man now, Dr. Horn. That's always been a thing out of Texas, no matter who been governor, who been whatever. They always want to succeed from the United States. That's always been their thing. But, you know, Dr. Horn, you, you, you made a good point when you talk about how to use these front people, like you said, like man, and, 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 I, and I like how you how you worded. You said when the Tim Scotts of the world, the, the Larry Elders, the Jay, they, when they have no more use for them, like you said, like I use it, I, I like the knowledge you use, like you said, car accidents, discredit, you know, charge with uh, uh, charges come up on these people. Because see, it's like the Honorable Elijah Muhammad said, when the white man has no has no more use for these Negroes, after you use them up, he throw them right back in the laps of their people. You know what I mean? And he has always did that. And it's, but some of these Negroes, they can't seem to, to get that. But see, but see, Dr. Horn, I take it from this level. That's why I thank God for a person like you, because when you was talking earlier about critical race, there was Brother West Carter from Atlanta. You know, like I said, the whole thing, like they don't want to talk about slavery, and they use Negroes, for example, Dr. Horn, and I, because I know you, you want to leave, so I want to hold you up too much. But for example, Dr. Horn. I'm watching one of the conservative stations that I was flipping it down. They had Cal Swain on there. And I'm saying to myself, oh, God. Hey, that's, 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 that was my response, too. That was my response, too. Dr. Horn, let me, let me say this, Dr. Horn. I said, I said, look, I said, if I'm a black man or a black woman, I got a, 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 a black son or a black daughter, I don't want that woman nowhere near my child teaching no class. I don't care about this history, math, anything, because she's a fool. Now, I'm, I'm listening to this woman. I usually like the dog out black woman, but sometimes, Dr. Horn, you have to call a spade a spade, man. I'm listening to this woman. We should teach at Vanderbilt. Now it's at Princeton. She on there with the, the white girl that's a bigot over there on Fox News telling her that critical race theory is something that's in the front of white people and saying that, that Dr. King will be turned over in his grave because, after all, you know, he didn't want white people to be discriminated against because white people are some of the most discriminated people in the United States right now and how the civil rights law was enacted in 64 to protect white people as well. I don't say there ain't no law needed to protect white people, fool, because they already had everything in their favor, you idiot. I mean, I mean, just to, just to sit there and talk so crazy like that, man. But, but see, this the push, like you said, Dr. Hall. They pushing the people like the cow swains, the the parents, the nods, people like that. You you, they, you got them all over there to be their their, their, their black mouthpieces and stuff. That's why I thank God that we have a balance. So when some for cow swain is out there, I thank God it's a Joe Horn out there. I thank God it's a, it's a Dr. Henderson who called from Detroit, man, because we we have got to counter these people, man. These people are very dangerous to our people, man, because they open traders, like you said, Uncle Tim Scott. Which is a good term, but these people are basically traitors, man. I have no use for, for for our people. I don't wish these people no harm, Dr. Hall, whatever they do. Whatever happens to these people, good or bad in life, that's on them. Because I just don't have, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you, Dr. Hall. I have no use for Negroes like that, male or female, that openly betray our people's interests. I have no use for them, man. And I just wanted to thank you, Dr. Hall, for, for, for referring to, to Tim Scott as Uncle Tim, man, because he's a disgrace. And, and, I, and, I, and this is my last point on him. To show you what a disgraceful handkerchief head Negro he is, now, he said out of his own mouth, Dr. Horn, that 
as a senator, he said how the, how the white racist Capitol Police would stop him, harass him as a, as, a, as a senator. And he would say how the, a lot of it was racially motivated and everything, and how his boy, uh, his fellow senator, what's his name, the, the, Lindsey Graham, had to talk to them, the, the, the layoff of him. So he know he experiences racism. So for him to get up there and respond to Joe Biden, sit there and say, well, this, this is not a racist country, when you admit out your own mouth that you've been stopped by the Capitol Police, you've been stopped by the South Carolina State Troopers, the South Carolina Police Department, how they pulled you over and all that stuff. And you only experience racism as a black man. So for you to get up there and talk so crazy, man, it's just, it just boggles the mind, Dr. Horn. It just boggles the mind. But I, I, again, Dr. Horn, I thank you in closing, man. And, I, and, like, and like Elliot, Dr. Horn, I'm a big boxer fan myself. So a, as, a, as you know, it's a big history of boxing because, matter of fact, Dr. Horn, on a, on a terrestrial radio show here in Philadelphia, I don't, I don't know if you remember Dr. Horn. I'm sure you remember Jimmy Young, who fought Muhammad Ali back in oh, the of course. Well, Jimmy Young was a and I'm a, and nobody's a bigger Muhammad Ali fan than me. But, but I had met Jimmy because when I used to go up to Joe Fraser, Jimmy had fell up and see Jimmy train, and Jimmy used to drive a, a beautiful blue sedan to build Cadillac. And I saw, and he, he didn't know me personally, Doctor Hall, but he knew me as a familiar face. Whenever he would see me, say, hey, "What's up, young bud?" You know, I always call me over. I was so tight, but he put his arm around me and talked to me. He became, he became like fast friends again. He didn't, he never knew me personally or anything. But whenever he see me, he would always call me over, and we would talk and everything like that. I told him I was a big supporter. I mean, he's an excellent boxer, man. Just against a great counter boxer, counter punch, everything. And of course, I, I, I had a good relationship with Benny Briscoe. And and, 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 and you remember Benny Briscoe? Of course, I write about yeah, okay. him in the book. Okay, okay. So I, so I got to get your book, Doctor. I, I haven't got you, but I will. Since Elliot, I will talk to Brother Elliot so I can get your book. And, and again, I, I knew Benny pretty well. I used to call him Mister Briscoe. I give him that respect. I knew him really well. And of course, me and me and uh, Elliot, we have a mutual friend who's, who who made transition. Tyrone Bellafort. Probably me and Tyrone went to school together. He was a good friend of mine. I mean, Ty was a beautiful brother, man. So I had a chance, Doctor Hall, to know a lot of the, the local fans about you. I, I knew Jeff. Um, with the brother from South Philadelphia, the, the fly, the, the light flyway. Jeff Jordan, Jeff Chandler, Jeff Chandler. Thanks, Elliot. Thank mm-hmm. you, Jordan. I, mean, I, I know I met them. I even met the late great Tyrone Everett and stuff, man, who got killed. What about Bernard? Ago. Bernard Hopkins. Yeah, I know Bernie. I know Bernard real well. I met, I met Bernard Hopkins through the late great Johnny Sample. You know what I mean? So I just had the honor, Doctor Horn, of meeting a lot of these Philadelphia boxers, man. I'm a big boxing fan. Now you know, you know, everybody knows I love football, basketball, baseball. But I'm a big boxing fan. So, so yeah, Doctor Horn, I'm gonna definitely get your book. I'm gonna, you know, talk to. and we'll talk to you soon. Good luck to you. <laughs> Have a good one. Take care now. We take a brief break, Richard, and then when we come back, we'll wind down the program. Okay.
You are listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening. With host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowner's insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 215 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger. Run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global Kometsu you Black family, to join your interconnected Kometsu you Black communities, escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. The brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us, or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? 
we have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. message to the black man because the black man today is a man who has been made now almost into a laughing stock nobody takes the black man serious we're just used to be somebody's tool we are the sportsmen we're the singers and the dancers and we're also labeled as the pimps and the criminals and the drug dealers, and the killers, and the vagabonds of society. We're the bogeymen of British society and other Western systems. And we want to dispel that lie and destroy those myths and put the black man back on the map where we belong. Who is the black man? The black man is the original man. If it wasn't for the black man, no other men could be on this planet. We are the fathers of humanity. We gave birth to all of you. Jesus, this powerful Jesus that's sitting at the right hand of the Father with all power in his hand. Then you go with your hat in your hand to the governor, to the mayor, to the president, begging for some crumbs. You have sold your God cheap. And you make the white man downtown disrespect all of us. Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. I want 
<clears throat> thank our guest this evening, uh, historian, uh, author, and chair of history and African American studies at the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn. It was an interesting conversation, Richard. Dr. Uh, Horn. Richard, I want to share this uh, clip. I don't know whether you heard it uh, with the listening audience because it kind of ties into our conversation this evening. Um, it was a program on CNN, and I can't get the the uh, sister's name. It was a young sister and a brother up there. I think they're columnists at a paper. And they've... I'm getting a little interference, and maybe that's me. I hope it is. Um, they they voice some opinions in reference to this uh, reform, these police reform bills. Um, it's a sentiment that is voiced by a lot of folks, black folks, in these communities, whether they be urban or rural. I want you to listen to what the sister says, and the brother at the end. The sister is first. Listen to what they said, Richard, and see how it ties in with our conversation this evening about planning of strategies to defeat this white nationalism. I want you to check this out, and uh, I'm going to get your comments. And listening audience, check it out also. To the ongoing fight right here in this country for police reform, authorities in South Carolina have released new footage showing the final moments of Jamal Sutherland, a black man who died in custody at the Charleston County Jail in January. Sutherland died after being pepper sprayed and tased multiple times by officers. He was being held on misdemeanor assault charges after a fight broke out at the mental health facility where he was staying. He reportedly suffered from schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Sutherland had been at the jail for about 14 hours when officers entered his cell to take him to a bond hearing. He resisted, and that's when officers began trying to subdue him with pepper spray and stun guns. You're about to see video of the moment officers entered his cell and began to restrain him and a warning that it is very disturbing. Joining me now is Brittany Packnett Cunningham, MSNBC contributor and founder of Love and Power Works, Lynn Wynn, executive director of Run API, and Giassi Ross, attorney, former public defender, and co-host of the Break Dances with Wolves podcast. Uh, that footage, I have to tell you guys, is uh, unwatchable. I mean, we could only show a few seconds um, of what happened. But Brittany, I will ask you, can policing be reformed? In short, Tiffany, no. You can't reform a system that was created to protect some people and to protect those people supposedly from the rest of us. A system that was created to control can't actually be changed. It can only be replaced with a true vision for public safety. Look, like you said, Jamal Sutherland was mentally disabled. Nearly half the people killed by police every single year have a disability. We know in North Carolina, the video of Andrew Brown Jr. now shows that he was executed, unlike what the police had previously said. And people are still justifying the murder of young Micaiah Bryant, even though she was reportedly defending herself. So, Tiffany, at some point, 
we have to strip away the veneer and recognize this was never about serving and protecting us. It was about serving and protecting certain people and certain groups and classes from the rest of us. And when you see police and prisons uh, like this um, in your, you see them as the line between your neighborhood and black and brown neighborhoods. And when you see it that way, you'll accept certain acceptable losses, like Daniel Shaver and the officer uh, who killed him, a white man in Mesa, Arizona, being acquitted. Right. You'll accept people going after the Capitol Police on January the 6th. None of these things should be acceptable in a democracy, and yet here we are. If the state can pick and choose who lives and dies, that is not a system that can be reformed. Yeah, Jassy, I want you to take a listen to Congressman Jim Clyburn uh, and comments that he made this week on qualified immunity. Take a listen. I know what the pressure bill will, will be. We have proposed that. I want to see good legislation, and I know that sometimes you have to compromise. If you don't get qualified immunity now, uh, then uh, we'll come back and try to get it later. But I don't want to see us throw out a good bill uh, because we can't get a perfect bill. So he's saying don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Maybe he can live without qualified immunity, but I think the question that so many people have is can we? What do you say, Jassy? I think that, unfortunately, uh, Brittany uh, kind of laid the, 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 you know, broad picture very, very eloquently. And that's exactly right. This, this system is untenable. And we're going to continue to see these casualties happen in a very, very systematic, very, very consistent and predictable way. Um, and unfortunately, in this country, things work in a really incremental way, particularly legislatively. So those casualties are going to simply continue to happen. And we can continue to expect more of these videos of brown and black folks being executed by law enforcement, more of these instances. We can also expect to see the response, the very, very appropriate and reasonable response of ordinary people who are threatened by this constant oppression and this constant threat of physical violence and death at the hands of law enforcement. So this give and take, this back and forth is going to continue to happen until there's more than incremental change. But unfortunately, Unfortunately, the way our, our, our capitalism, the way our system is set up, that is what we're going to continue to get is these little uh, uh, crumbs on the table that will encourage and indeed uh, uh, will require these casualties of brown and black lives. Richard? Yeah. You hear their opinions. Right. The Senate brother saying you can't reform this; it needs to be abolished. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that plays into the conversation that we had this evening because these conversations, and you can see that they clearly disagreed when they when they, the host of the program played Clyburn and what he said. Right. They clearly disagreed with him. In fact, if you see if you could see the video, you could see them shaking their heads. So. When you got this disconnect between the young people that's being affected by this and these older politicians who are shielded from it, and a lot of them are mouthpieces for the system, then you're going to have a collision course, just like Dr. King said in one of those collages I play. The collision course is set. Isn't that what Dr. King said? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. The collision course is set. 
So we can't, just like that voice I played a minute ago with uh, Mr. Farrakhan, we can't keep relegating this to generation, generation after generation. We just can't do it. We can't. Because if you look at history, you can see that this man is not going to change. He'll put little incremental. He'll change the curtains in the house, and it's still filthy inside. That's true. I mean, and, 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 you know, the thing as far as it changing, but what we have to be, what we have to be building is just as important um, in, in, in that, in that crushing out. Cause um, yeah, that's, that's how I, I, I see it. Cause we have to, that, what that new reality is, we have to build it. Exactly. Whether it be the family, whether it be the economic relations, whether it be, how we get our information, how we socialize us. That's what we have to be building. And we can't wait till afterwards for to that start to building. Occur. Yeah, it's got to be uh, being put in place now. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Uh, before we leave this evening, let me uh, just again tell you about the program and on time for Awakening Media, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. African Perspectives with Brother Oshie. That's 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Always interesting dialogue and conversations on African Perspectives with Brother Oshie. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on, Monday evenings, Acres of Diamonds, uh, which has been on hiatus, they'll be back soon, very soon, mm-hmm. from 6 to 8 uh, with Brother Jihad Ahmed. From 8 to 9, Black Therapy Central with host Dr. Maria Kamban and, and uh, Dr. Kamal Kamban. Conversation reparations. You know, the program started last week, and uh, it was my fault. Uh, uh, anyway, it's the first and third Monday of the month. Just pencil in on your calendar. The next uh, conversation reparations will be aired at 9 to 10 on Time for an Awakening Media. On Tuesday, 8 to 10, Black Reality Think Tank with Dr. William Rogers. That's 8 to 10 p.m. On Thursday, Black Reality Think Tank again uh, from 7 to 9. On time for the weekly media. Oh, on Wednesday, I'm sorry. On Wednesday, uh, it's our time. Uh, West Georgia uh, Farm Cooperative the Black Farmers Program is on Wednesdays from eight to nine. On time for the weekly media. Fridays, time for the weekly is back from eight to ten, or eight until on Saturday uh, from four to six p.m. in the afternoon. Black Sister Talk with host Lawanda Chambers, and later on Saturday evening, the elders of Sankofa from 7 to 9 p.m. with host Brother Alfonso Watkins and then time for an awakening is back from 7 until on Sunday evening. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace.
Children. 